Dropbox has been storing files on Amazon Web Services for eight years, and Dropbox's core business is storing files. So you might say that the entirety of the core business is on Amazon Web Services, or it has been for the past eight years. And for the past three years, Dropbox has been working on a project to migrate that file storage from Amazon Web Services to Dropbox's own custom-built infrastructure. Magic Pocket is the name of Dropbox's new infrastructure layer, and it gives Dropbox more control over its software and improved economics. James Cowling leads the storage team at Dropbox. On today's episode, James takes us into the architecture of Dropbox and explains how the team moved all of the user file storage from Amazon S3 to Dropbox's Magic Pocket infrastructure. This was a Herculean effort. Dropbox's architecture is built with a focus on simplicity, and there are numerous challenges to maintaining that simplicity in the face of an extremely complex migration like this. So there's lots of interesting distributed systems problems, uh, infrastructure problems, economics discussions. I enjoyed this conversation immensely, and I think that you will too. James Cowling leads the storage team at Dropbox. James, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much, Jeff. Really nice to be here. Dropbox recently migrated off of Amazon Web Services and onto its own hardware. And I want to discuss that migration in detail. But first, explain how Dropbox works from the user's perspective and why it made sense to be on AWS in the first place. Yeah, and I'll go into a bit more detail there. And, and to be clear, we're still a pretty close partner with Amazon. So, you know, we don't talk about it as migrating off, but at least migrating a very large fraction of our storage onto our own hardware. So if you look, look at the kind of the origin of, I'm, I'm going to guess the listeners know how Dropbox works. It's a cloud file, you know, sync and share and collaboration platform. You upload files to Dropbox, we store them and provide collaboration mechanisms. So since kind of the dawn of time, Dropbox has been leveraged off of both Amazon Web Services and also off our own hardware. So since very early on in the company, we've, we've kind of been a proponent of this hybrid model. For us, that meant all the actual blocks, the files themselves, were stored on Amazon S3. And we have servers running on EC2 that kind of interact with those blocks. So the servers that do uploads and downloads and compression and encryption and all those things. And then since very early on in the company, we also had servers running in our own data centers. So originally that was in hosted data centers and more recently in spaces that we run ourselves. Uh, and these spaces run our web servers and most of our business logic and contain our databases. So for a very long time, we've had this model within Dropbox with metadata and all the kind of rich business logic stored in our own data centers and then the bulk storage in Amazon Web Services. Over time, the kind of distribution of which things we build internally and which things we leverage of third-party providers has changed. And for us, this kind of big shift recently in what we're talking about today is us moving kind of the majority of our, our storage into our own data centers as well. But, you know, we continue to be a pretty close partner with Amazon. We use a lot of their services still, you know, the simple email service, simple queuing service, a lot of these things that make a lot more sense for us to leverage of a third party. And, but, yeah, the kind of big the bulk of our storage, like I said, is on our own data centers right now. Right. So how has that that initial architecture that you had from the beginning with the metadata versus the actual data split up, 
and the all the architectural principles that came out of that how did that scale over time the initial architecture you know prior to when you actually moved you know you started moving off of aws to your own servers how was that initial architecture that you had scaling yeah i mean i think dropbox is very fortunate to very early on end up in an architectural model that that scaled quite well from a from a block storage perspective so if you think of the block storage it's very easily shardable you have these kind of blocks they're stored as idempotent blobs in a big storage system uh, strapped across, you know, thousands of machines. And that scales up very easily. So the kind of block storage is something that scaled very well and splitting that out from the business logic was a very wise move. That allowed us to, you know, have the servers that handle big bulk data flows be distinct from the services that are doing more fine-grained transactions and, and business logic. So then you look at the metadata side, which is also a big challenge. And like any company, you start with a single database, right? We started with a database called Global. And it was a single MySQL database and had everything on there. Over time, as you scale, you realize that's not going to keep working forever, right? You have to start splitting off. And right now, we have many thousands of databases. So I think you can think of this as like the lineage as a company grows in terms of architectural maturity. From starting off with something small that just works, I mean, my advice to any kind of small startup is not to overscale your infrastructure before you get started because your product's going to change, right? You need to be, be able to adapt. But, you know, starting from we had a single database to splitting off various components that would, you know, scale independently to right now where we have this kind of very large infrastructure. And we can go into more details later on stuff like Edge Store, which is a system we run internally for distributing our metadata. Yeah, absolutely. So the decision to migrate away from the core file storage part that you were storing on AWS, was the motivation for that, was it more about the cost structure of AWS or was it more that you were, was there some actual infrastructure like computer scientific thing that you were worried about with scaling the business? Yeah, I mean, I think both, right? But I think the primary motivations are more on the, the computer science side of things, right? The building and maintaining our own infrastructure allows us to really tailor it specifically to the workloads of our, of our clients. So, for example, we know where our users are physically in the world. We know approximately how large the blocks they store are. I can tell you, you know, our average block size is 1.6 megabytes, for example. We know how frequently those blocks are read and written. So we can kind of tailor our hardware very specifically to those workloads and kind of get a kind of more optimized hardware, software profile for our workloads. It also having our own infrastructure allows us to invest strategically in stuff like international storage. We've already announced a multi-homing, you know, are you having storage, storage in Europe? Also stuff like building this kind of internal competency for managing very large volumes of, of hardware. It's been a very important kind of step in the evolution of Dropbox as a company from an infrastructural perspective. So the term block storage is one I'd like to define a little bit more because you've mentioned it once. Could you define what block storage is and what are the unique demands of Dropbox's use case for block storage? Yeah, for sure. So I'm sure different people have different definitions of block storage. But when I say block storage, I mean somewhat interchangeably when people say a blob store, where the the blocks we're storing are are opaque to the storage system. So the storage is called Magic Pocket, the the storage system we build at Dropbox, doesn't have any insight into the contents of these blocks. So when they hit the storage system, they're, they're encrypted and compressed. These are just opaque blocks of data that are also immutable. So if you think about how Dropbox stores its files, 
there's metadata that manages, you know, for your given user, you know, who you share these files with, what blocks are in that file. And the, the blob store, the block store, just stores the file contents itself. And so that allows us to build a, a block storage system that stores immutable chunks of data, which is actually a, a much easier problem than building kind of mutable chunks. Uh, we build all the mutability on a layer on top of the storage system that we call file journal. So what are, what are the unique characteristics of Dropbox's use case? One is that we're a very write-heavy workload. So we have a very high, a lot of companies' storage systems are tailored towards a very read-dominant workloads where you have, you know, a photo that's viewed by thousands of people, right? A lot of Dropbox content is shared with only a small number of people or is people's private files. So there's a very high write-to-read ratio. The other thing about Dropbox's workload is while a lot of those blocks are cold, and I think the example I used in the past is your tax documents from 1997. You don't really care about those most of the time. You want them to be safe. Uh, you probably won't look at them for a while. But when you want them, you want them immediately. So we have a lot of content in Dropbox, a lot of blocks that are cold, they're not accessed very frequently, but they need to be provided in very low latency. So that's quite unique about our workload. And, and we have kind of internal graphs of the access distribution for these files. And you know, we know how frequently a file is accessed after the first hour, first week, and first month, etc. Uh, and we can kind of tailor our architecture to that. With these unique access patterns, is there something about AWS that where you didn't get the low granularity, or I guess high granularity of support or flexibility that was ideal for Dropbox? I wouldn't say so. You know, we've always been very happy with the service we got from AWS. You know, obviously we're a very l- large storage footprint in S3, and we work very closely together with the S3 team. The kind of the migration was not in response to anything performance-wise. We were very happy with our performance and reliability of, of S3. Now that said, Magic Pocket, our internal metrics that we're at, you know, three to five times faster on our internal metrics. But ultimately the, the dominant latency is not the latency you're talking to the storage system, it's the last hop towards the client. Uh, so this is really you know, we're really pretty happy with, with our performance in, like I said in S3. But they have a harder job than us, right? S3, Amazon S3 has to build a storage system for everybody, for very widely varied workloads. And for us, we can tailor this very specifically to our use case. You know, I would tell anyone who thinks it's a, it's a no-brainer to build your own storage system, it's, it's not at all, right? It's actually, it's a big undertaking and the big cloud storage providers do a very great job. It just so happens when you get to a very large scale like a Dropbox uh, where you can tailor the kind of the hardware and software to your workloads does it make a lot of sense. Now that we've talked a bit about how Dropbox, or why Dropbox moved to its own infrastructure, we should talk about the how. When you were in early meetings about how this migration was going to proceed, what were you talking about? What was the team thinking about in terms of how this project was going to proceed from a really high level? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a big question, right? I think one of the challenges with building Magic Pocket, the storage system at Dropbox, is we didn't have the luxury of building it from zero, right? Dropbox has always been a, a very dominant player in the storage space. We had to build a solution that had to scale up from day one to store hundreds of petabytes. It was also a moving target, right? So when we started thinking about building Magic Pocket, Dropbox, I don't remember the exact number, probably was in the you know very low double-digit petabytes of storage. Over time and over the development of the project, even though it was a quite a, a short project as far as storage systems go, the system grew dramatically. So 
what was interesting is when we first started approaching this problem, as, a, as an engineer would, thinking about architecture, uh, the software engineering discipline, testing, etc., the, uh, the thing that became very obvious as the product proceeded was how much of an, a big kind of engineering and execution initiative this was. So, I kind of the metaphor I use here is kind of thinking about like building a bridge, for example. It's very important that the design is sound and you know, the architectural principles are, are all there. But the, a lot of the challenges come, involve, come in you know, making sure everything arrives on time, making sure all the teams deliver on the same schedules, right? Uh, especially when we ramped up the product very fast towards the end. You know, we grew, we moved, you know, over 500 petabytes of data into Magic Pocket in a very short time window, about six months. And that involved us kind of executing fairly flawlessly on a supply chain level, networking, hardware, etc. So, I guess the what I'd typify about the product is one, yes, the first year or so in the product was all design and prototyping. But after then, the big shift was shifting towards an execution model and making sure we actually executed flawlessly with multiple teams. It seems like a project that is not necessarily conducive to agile development. Like there's so much planning that needs to be done. I mean, obviously you're going to be doing kind of agility at the margins, but did it feel like a waterfall type of project? <laughs> well, it's funny. I was the tech lead for the project for most most of the project, and I've never kind of ascribed to a to a specific software engineering management discipline. For us, mostly it was about having very good people on a team, having a very clearly defined goal, and a goal that was compartmentalizing. That wasn't like, hey guys, let's build a storage system in in two years' time. This can be multiple exabytes. It was, you know, our first goal is to have operational system in production storing x amount of data that's mirrored from production so it's very very well-defined goals and then spending a lot of effort in splitting those goals up as much as we can into components individuals can own right and we just had a very highly motivated team such that you know giving people the autonomy to take this product and run allowed us to move very fast i mean we can go into details later on i mean the regional prototypes we wrote were in python this because we wanted to move very fast and just play around with the design. You know, Python is not a language I necessarily advocate for a, a huge distributed storage system. And at some point, it became very clear we had to rewrite this, the product in, in Go. And most of our code is written in Go. Some of it's written in Rust. And so the rewrite in Go was basically conducted by four people in the space of maybe two months. And that was really us writing, you know, about 100,000 lines of code in a very short period of time because the goals were very clear, the architecture was very well established. We'd had all that experience in this kind of playground in Python. We knew what we needed to build. And then, you know, it was weekly check-ins to kind of discuss progress and then, you know, sitting together talking all day about design and implementation. Okay, we'll talk more, talk more about this prototyping process because you know, obviously the prototyping process had some sense of flexibility, but I'm sure you had to impose some sort of order over the team working on it. So was there an MVP that you were going for with the prototype that you were building for the storage system? Yeah, and, and I'll be completely transparent here. I think when we first started building the storage system, we didn't describe it as prototyping, right? We didn't say, hey, everyone, we're building a prototype. We just said, hey, let's, and this was really like a two, three person project at the time, initially a one person project, was really like, let's build a story system in Python and get experience with doing that. So the idea was to build a real story system. I think we wanted to store around 30 petabytes of data in it. 
And we wanted that to be a mirror of production traffic. So meaning we have our data in production and we had a safe copy of some of that data in the storage system. Along the way, we you know, start spending more and more time dealing with scaling issues, concurrency issues, etc. It made it clear that it was time for a rewrite. But it's always a kind of a, a risky move to do a rewrite. You know, it's, it's not always, obviously, it's a big delay in the schedule. You know, we wanted to hit this goal in terms of building the storage system at a certain date. And saying, hey, guys, we're going to pause development and rewrite the entire system is a big call. It's, it's, a, it's a risky move. It turned out to be absolutely the right move for us for two reasons. One is, yes, writing in a, in a language is you know, more type safe and has better concurrency primitives, obviously a no-brainer and a great benefit for us. But really, the, kind of the, the second system where we've built the system once, we know what, what issues we ran into. And we patched them up and we made changes to the Python implementation. We were able to go into the Go version with a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge about what, was, what we wanted the system to look like and, be kind of, and end up with something that didn't need to be patched later on or have new features shoehorned into it. It was kind of basically cleaned from the ground up. So when I think about the top-down perspective of this project, when I think about the highest level of what you have to build, to me it seems like you basically have to build something that is has an API that's compliant with S3. Did you basically have to build your own S3 and then fill in all the gaps beneath that? Yeah, it's one of those interesting things, you know, you can't just build a storage system in isolation and throw it over the fence at the company and say, hey guys, use our storage system, right? So we had to actually build this into the rest of the rest of Dropbox. And that was one of the, one of the biggest challenges. We actually have a different API to S3. Hmm. It's pretty similar. A different API that's kind of better suited to our use cases. Part, so, yeah. so this was this a different API that you had built, even that worked with Amazon S3 that you had built as an abstraction over S3, or is this a new, completely new API well, that you built? Yeah, well, we had to build that abstraction layer, so that's exactly what happened, right? So we started ah. building a storage system, started testing it, and then it became time, and we, we made sure that the API was compatible with, with what we want to achieve at Dropbox. And then the job was then to go and build this abstraction layer. So we have a, we have a layer called Block Store within our team we built and we manage. And that's the, that's the layer in the system that takes a given namespace, corresponding to a user, and decides whether to store that data in S3 or in Magic Pocket. Uh, we manage that kind, of, that kind of interface layer. So basically, the idea is that any developer in the company shouldn't, know, shouldn't have to know what storage system their data is going to. We handle that for them automatically. Okay, so the developers at Dropbox, they write their APIs compliant with this layer that talks to either S3 or Magic Pocket, to them, it is totally opaque as to which storage system they're actually accessing. Exactly. And, th- and that's the idea in theory. In practice, it's a little bit more messy because, for example, you need to make decisions like, should this data go to S3 or, or Magic Pocket? And if it's in Magic Pocket, which areas of the country should it get stored in? Or maybe we want to store this, this user in Europe, for example. So that required us to provide more information, these hints to the storage system about where the data should go. And that meant we had to go into the bowels of Dropbox and, and make changes through the, the data processing pipelines. But on the whole, most application developers at the company had, you didn't have to make any changes for the storage system. That was kind of taken care of by our team. Okay. So from the article that you posted about Magic Pocket recently, you said that Magic Pocket is based on a rather simple set of core protocols. So what are the core protocols that make up Magic Pocket? Yeah, and, uh, and just to, be, to add some color there, the reason I wrote that, you know, I, I went to grad school and uh, did a PhD in distributed systems. 
and spent a lot of time working on very kind of complicated distributed consensus protocols. Stuff that's an area called Byzantine fault tolerance where I used to work in. And Byzantine fault tolerance is a way to tolerate these quorums of nodes, some which may be malicious and may be sending incorrect or inappropriate information. What became very clear from that work is sometimes very complicated protocols are necessary, but there's a real cost to complexity, uh, a huge cost to complexity. And even in a storage system like this, we, we, we try to make Magic Pocket as absolutely simple as possible. It's a very big and very complicated system because the complexity comes anyway. You can't build a multi-exabyte storage system without complexity creeping in. So for us, the real kind of philosophy behind the protocols are to be as lazy as possible. And I mean lazy in a computer science perspective here. So to have a very clear idea about where the commit points, or where, where the kind of consensus points are in the system, and then not enforce artificial serialization or artificial consensus elsewhere in the system. I can give you an example of that. So you know, the listeners can go and, and look at the blog where we go into more detail on the architecture. But when you do a write to Magic Pocket, at a high level, that means picking a volume to write into. And a volume is a data store spread across a bunch of machines. And so the front end tries to write this data to every node in that volume. And if any node fails, we just abort and try again. Right? There's no complicated consensus protocol behind the scene to try and ensure that you write to a quorum of those nodes and they run a quorum agreement protocol amongst them. We try to write to a volume. If that volume write fails, we just pick a different volume and write to that. And then we have background processes that go around and clean up this state. This allows us to have our kind of critical path be very simple and have more complexity in the background kind of processes that go in clean up state that shouldn't exist, for example. So if you attempt to write to a volume, you only write to half the nodes in that volume. Eventually, we have to go and delete the data that ended up on half of those. So it was, I guess the priority there was to make the very core data flows as simple as possible. Because those are the ones that can break. Complex parts of your system can break and they're slower, right? So we want the stuff that is user-facing to be very, very simple and then push the complexity towards this kind of background remediation, garbage collection, that kind of stuff. So this reminds me of a couple shows we've done recently. One was about VaultDB, which is a distributed database, and the other one was about Kubernetes. And both of these talked about this central transaction log that allows for more independence yeah. among the moving parts because it's more this append-only transaction log. And my impression is that's like a really a growing trend because, you know, when I, I took a class in distributed systems in college and I don't remember much about append-only transaction logs. It was mostly conversations about the core, that highly complex quorum style consensus that nobody wants to deal with. Is this a more recent development when people really started talking about these append only things in production systems? Yeah, and, and I'm very familiar with the, with the Vault DB architecture. I, I spent some time working with Andy Pavlo in grad school who worked in Vault DB. And we, have a, we share a lot of opinions on this kind of area. I think if I think about the shift in prioritization within distributed systems in the time I've been in the community, we started off with strong consensus, a very strong consensus, quorum protocols, etc. And then over time, moving to a very eventual consistency model. So you have this era when Amazon published Dynamo, and there was a lot of work on eventually consistent systems. Everyone said there was the um, Eric Brewer, I think, had the CAP theorem, 
saying that you know you just can't achieve consistency if you want to have partition tolerance. And so there's a big swing within the community to building systems that were eventually consistent with kind of rather weak guarantees. And then you found you know, for the next five years or so, application developers were forced to develop on these eventually consistent platforms that offered pretty weak guarantees in many cases and were quite hard to code towards. And then you had a swing back in the other direction. So Google published Spanner, the Spanner work, which was really a total swing in the other direction you know, on the tails of a lot of other work before that uh, advocating for stronger consistency. Where they said, yeah, you know, we're going to have true, you know, global strong consistency again. And I think right With now... atomic clocks. Exactly, exactly. And then right now, I think we're in, hopefully in a bit of a renaissance where people maybe are not jumping on bandwagons as much. And saying, look, you know, there's a very good reason to have points of strong consensus in a system. So we we do have some very we have something called the uh, we call it the HDB internally. I think I called it the block index in the blog post. Uh, this this is a point of consensus in the system, and it runs a, a quorum protocol. That's some strong consistency right there. But that's one component in a much bigger system where you know we have basically as weak consistency guarantees as possible. We're not needed, so we have more flexibility for scaling and for independence. So you have found the minimum surface area where you need a consensus protocol. Exactly, exactly right. You know, you don't want to be building uh, serialization all if you're building a storage system, for example, the whole way down the stack where it's not needed. Now, of course, this is you should all take this in context. This I'm talking about building a block storage system. This is not a database necessarily, right? It's a bit of a simpler problem. Our blocks are idempotent, but you know the the main kind of heavy lifting part of like storing the blocks and erasure coding them and doing all these transformations, these can be done opportunistically with fairly weak consistency guarantees provided there's a commit point, which is a very strong consistency properties. For that, for us, that commit point is the right into the block index, for example. Okay. So in these types of append-only systems, so you mentioned like if you try to perform a write and you don't know if it worked... And then, so you're like, okay, whatever, we'll just write again. How do you resolve problems where, I mean, there must be you know potential problems that can occur if if it turns out that that first write actually did complete and then you've now done a second write. How do you resolve those types of problems? Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a great question and it's going to be hard for me to answer this in the podcast. I'm actually going <laughs> to publish a blog very soon when I get around to it. Hopefully in the next two weeks, a blog about, it's going to be called Pocket Protector how we protect your data within Magic Pocket. And this is going to go into details. Look, yes, you do have to have sane consistency protocols. Right? For us, we have stuff like using generation numbers. on. Vol- we have a, you know, one, of the, one of the key features of our volumes we have is this open-close model. So an open volume can accept new data, but it can't be moved around. Nothing can happen to it. It can only accept new writes. When it's time to make a transformation to that volume, we close it, make sure it's closed in the block index. At that point, we can move it around, we can compact it and run garbage collection on it. So we have these kind of points of consistency where we ensure that nothing uh, untoward happens. But that kind of leads us to a very interesting topic, which is just how do you make sure the system is correct? And that, you know, I think if I put on my grad student hat, my academic hat here, I would argue that the reason the system is correct is because it has very strong protocol design is very sound and it's been tested carefully, etc. But if I put on my industry hat here, right, the reason it's correct is not just because of that, it's because we have a very strong discipline around verification systems and, and release process 
and protections in case bugs do get into production. So that's, I think that's the real key. That's the difference between building a toy system and building a very large kind of distributed store system that has to offer 12, 13 nines of durability. Hmm. So is this a pen-only transaction log? Is that the file journal? That's the what we call, um, well, we, we have a pen-only logs at various places in the system. So we have the, the block index is our kind of database that stores the mapping of blocks to the locations that they're on. Within a volume, we have an append-only log that just stores those blocks. And that's because our system's designed to support this new type of hard drive called an SMR disk, a shingled magnetic recording. These, these are disks that have very poor random write performance. So on our storage layer, all our writes are sequential and append-only. And then, yes, we do have, at a higher level of, of extraction than the storage system, we have something called file journal, which is the append-only log that stores the you know, user's path information and the file revisions. Okay, got it. So let's let's talk a little bit about actually writing this software. So you used Go for some parts of it, you used Rust for some parts of it. Give me a little more color on the language selections. Yeah, so and I'm, I'm probably going to offend some listeners by saying, you know, I'm not a language fanboy and I don't think the specific language matters that much. It's the, you know, the design and the principles that matter, but we were pretty happy with the switch to Go. So like I said, Dropbox was a primarily a Python shop for our you know, business logic. We needed a language that was had good concurrency support, had a strong type system. Go seemed pretty promising in this, in this dimension it, as a means to kind of avoiding C++ and memory management pitfalls that can come there and the need to build up a lot of protections around C++ because you can really, to build a kind of scalable C++ organization requires a lot of internal libraries and a lot of kind of rules around software engineering. So Go is a good choice. Eventually, Rust became necessary only in some very small use cases. So the entire system was built and launched in Go and had great performance, and so we're very happy with that. Then it came time very recently, we had a product called Discotech, and Discotech was the kind of the disk technology sub-team within storage. And their task was to kind of redesign the bottom level of the storage system. So the actual disks themselves and the software that runs on the, on the physical storage machines and that required us to do, well, ultimately, it required us to right-size our hardware much more. And that meant reducing our memory footprint, reducing our CPU usage. And for the type of processing that goes on there, I mean, on these boxes, they're actually directly managing disk scheduling, for example, and they're directly managing caching. They're really quite low level. And for these, we found Rust gave us much more control over the memory management, which allows us to use a much smaller memory footprint on these boxes. Yeah, I have an upcoming show about Rust. I've been doing some research on it, and the the memory management characteristics of it seem extremely unique. We've been pretty happy. I mean, a lot of the folks at Dropbox on infrastructure, you know, C++ people by training, right? And, and they've kind of taken, if you look at the profiles of people on the storage team, there's a bunch of Haskell nerds, for whatever reason, congregated on the storage team. People who love functional programming in Haskell, and then people who have all have experience with C++. And so Rust has been this great kind of mix of a very strong type system with more direct control of the hardware. Uh, and we've been really quite happy with Rust so far. We work also somewhat closely with the Rust community and we have various libraries internally that we, which we want to open source soon. But we've been pretty happy. But yeah, to be clear, Rust is a fairly niche language within Dropbox. It's used you know, within these layers of the storage system. And we're currently evaluating it for um, other use cases in the company as well. Hmm. Okay, so I, I kind of want to get to the 
discussion of launching because I think that's a pretty interesting yeah. conversation. But first, I want to talk about testing. So what was the testing strategy for these different software modules as you were moving towards the idea of actually launching? Yeah, so there's a lot of detail here. So the you know, first thing anyone will tell you is unit tests, right? The unit tests are important, but they're not very interesting. You know, everything has to be unit tested very thoroughly. But, you know, regular engineers write bugs that get caught by unit tests. Really good engineers write bugs that slip through unit tests, right? Because these are the bugs that happen on the boundaries of APIs, right? The bugs where, you know, someone misunderstood what an error code meant and this kind of stuff. These are things that, that you really need strong integration tests to catch. So we have a pretty thorough, very good code coverage on unit testing. But the next phase of that is integration testing. And we have multiple levels of integration testing. For us, that means simulated testing on development, uh, development machines, dev VMs. Then we run various integration tests where we kind of run this kind of fuzz test where you run the system on a single machine, but with, with, with you know, many nodes, virtual nodes spooled up with lots of puts and gets. And we run basically an FSCK over the storage system after a lot of failures have been injected. Then we have something we call the durability tests. And so what we do is we run multiple versions of the code concurrently at the same time. And that's important because when you push code to a system like Magic Pocket, it's a giant system with thousands of nodes. It takes a long time to push that code out. And during that code push, you're going to have multiple versions running concurrently at the same time. And a lot of the bugs that kind of will slip through, you know, less comprehensive testing are the ones where an API may have, cha may have changed very slightly between versions. And this makes sure the different versions play nice with each other before they go out to production. So once we're at this point, we've kind of tested it in a more simulated environment. It's time to go out to production. And we have a, a kind of pretty comprehensive stage production release process that I can also go into details on. Well, yeah. So in, in August 2014, you began the dark launch. So I don't know if that's what you would define as a release, but let's just get into the launch discussion. So explain what the dark launch was. Yeah. So the dark launch was where basically we, as far as the team was concerned, the system was in production. So what this meant was basically us saying, we have tested the system for a very long time. We've gone through auditing and all this failure injection and, and production tests, and we've overheated racks until they failed and make sure we can recover the data. We're very, very confident in the storage system. We're ready to launch. Right? But Dropbox is a very cautious company when it comes to user data because nothing's more important to us than, than user data. So what we did was basically launch it internally with a backup on S3. So for some fraction of users, the data was stored in Magic Pocket and also double written to S3 at the same time. And our kind of contract with the company was that we would run the system for six months without any issues. You know, we treat it as if it's the primary storage system for Dropbox, it's running in production, no such thing as turning it off or backing it out, and it must run absolutely flawlessly for this time period. And it was successful. One of the not notable things during this process was we got, I can't remember the exact time now, we got, say, a few, maybe a month into this process, and we found, and you know, before we, you want to make sure that you don't engage in kind of slippery slope behaviors where you get really close to launch and you say, well, close enough is good enough. So before we got into this, we wrote down kind of a contract for ourselves and actually Drew and Arash, the founders of Dropbox, signed this contract. It was mostly a bit of fun, but we had this contract for what we had to do and, and what the rules were for resetting the launch clock. So with this big clock in the office, I put a, made a big dashboard with a, with a countdown clock saying how long it's been. And we got some time period, say 37 days, something like that, and we found a bug. And this bug 
didn't impact any <laughs> didn't impact any user data. It didn't cause any problems. It was masked by a bunch of protection mechanisms that we had, but it did make it out to our staging cluster. So staging cluster is the cluster we run code in before it makes it into production. And we decided as a team that you know what, like that's too close, right? Like we shouldn't get that a bug shouldn't get that close to production. So we proactively decided to reset the clock, you know? Wow. And so I had to email the VP and say, hey, we're delaying the project a month and a half, two months, whatever that number was. And it's going to cost a lot of money, et cetera, because, you know, we had to reset the launch clock. And the company was extremely supportive of that, right? Because that's, mm-hmm. and that's kind of, you have to stay true to your principles, right? And I think the team was, wouldn't have been happy with ourselves launching the system if we hadn't reset the clock at that point. Now, obviously, the next time around, it was totally flawless, no problems, and we and we launched very smoothly. And that was February 2015. Uh, yeah, and I'm forgetting dates now. That sounds about right. February, yeah. So, so at that point, you began actually serving user files. Yes, we've been serving user files in the background in test clusters. Time before that, but the dark launch was when we said Magic Pocket is the primary storage system for these users. Wow. And by primary, what I mean is before that point in time. If something really bad would happen, just say a cascading failure, some database got overloaded and it caused a cascading failure. That's the worst thing that's going to happen typically in a storage system is big cascading failures. And Magic Pocket went down. Before that date, we'd say, you know what, guys? Dropbox is down. Shut off the system. Go back to S3. But during dark launch, once we hit that point, there was no turning back. That was If Magic Pocket goes down, Dropbox is down, and there's no compromise from then onwards. So that's what we mean about being the primary storage system from then on. So we kept backups for a very long period of time after that just to be on the safe side but ever since then magic pocket has been running as a, the primary storage system and as of now is holding you know over 90 percent of our data without any incident since then wow okay so in april 2015 the this might be what you were referring to so there were there were some potential threats because you were racing to install yes. additional servers fast enough to keep up with the flow of data so explain what happened in april yeah, so what happened was we launched the product ahead of schedule, right? And it was running and it was going well. And so we said, what's our big next milestone? And we had a kind of contractual reasons where we wanted to get a very large fraction of data off S3 in a very short period of time. And that was all in all about 500 petabytes of data over the course of, I guess, six months or so. And so we set this very aggressive launch clock where we had to scale the system from what at the time was a few hundred petabytes of raw storage to what ended up being multiple exabytes of raw storage and migrate this data in. And so basically, it was a real test of the system in terms of, it was a test of two things. One, it was a test of the system making sure we you know, put our money where our mouth is, we could really scale this up fast. And the second was a test of our kind of execution and operational abilities to really bring up that kind of volume of hardware in such a short period of time. And we had, you know, problems and, you know, I would laugh to myself that, you know, when I was in grad school, I never thought about the issue of what happens when you have so many racks, you can't fit them in the loading dock at the same time, right? Like we had times where there was like <laughs> 30 to 40 racks a day coming in and, you know, we'd, I'd sit down and work with our data center folks and I'd say, you know, these racks are going to land in these slots in the data center to give us the kind of hardware diversity that we need. And they say, look, you know, we just can't Tetris these racks through the data center fast enough to get them into production. And so these are these real world problems that you typically don't think of when you caught up in this world of software that at the end of the day the cloud is not just some amorphous thing it's a it's big rooms full of lots of servers that take a lot of work to install and so that was a lot of fun for us it was a it was a very tough you know it was a lot of work and it was stressful in some respects but it was a lot of fun as well 
And ultimately, was you know we came in I think a month under bud under schedule and under budget. That was a very successful project. And ultimately, it was called Base Jump because of the metaphor of you know jumping off a cliff. We had this kind of cliff in our storage we had to navigate, and very short period of time to open the parachute. So fortunately, the parachute opened in time, and the project was successful. It was a lot of fun, but a lot, a lot of work at the same time. So give me an idea of how development is going at Dropbox now, because. You know, you've completed this enormous project and it opens up so many doors into what Dropbox could potentially do at this point. So what is the company focusing on? Yeah, I mean, so Dropbox is a company, you know, infrastructure is, is not the only thing we do, obviously, right? So a lot of the work within the companies in the collaboration space, and, and there's, I'm sure there's, someone can give you better information on, you know, the future directions of, of Dropbox product. So a lot of people working on product. I work on infrastructures. I work on backend services. And for us, Magicbox is only one of the many things that we do. It's a relatively small team in the in the big scheme of things, but it has opened the door for us to kind of push the envelope technologically. I'll give you an example just with the Magic Pocket, right? And so the first challenge was just you know build the storage system, make it work, make it reliable, right? And then as soon as we had that in production and working, actually before it was even finished, we said, hey, now how can we push the envelope here? What's the next thing coming around the corner in terms of storage technology? That was something I referenced before, this SMR disks, new type of disk, that 30% more dense than a standard hard drive, cheaper, but very bad random write performance. How can we change our storage architecture to use these disks? So we're kind of in a model now where we can really push the envelope. And I believe we're one of the only companies in the world right now that's at a point where they're kind of ready to deploy SMR storage because it's just a big undertaking. So when I think about potential products that Dropbox could build on top of this new infrastructure, the sky seems like the limit to me. Like so some people say, you know, like, oh, okay, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, DigitalOcean, whatever, all these different cloud service providers, how are they going to differentiate? How is there enough cloud business to go around? And I, when I look at it, I'm like, well, the opposite is just going to be true. Like there's going to be so much demand for cloud services that there is just going to be increasing specialization over time. And the companies that are investing now in building their own cloud infrastructure are just going to be well positioned to pounce on whatever infrastructure type of market develops that they can seize upon. So let's imagine a world where Dropbox gets into the EC2 type of business, the Google Compute Cloud business where you're actually offering compute level primitives, what would that world look like? And what would the competitive advantages be for Dropbox in that world? Yeah, and I think, you know, there's certainly no immediate plans for Dropbox to kind of get into the compute as a service model. And it's a little bit antithetical to our vision, which is to provide kind of a value added service. And what I mean by that is to make it, Dropbox is really about building products for consumers and, and for enterprises, right? To make it easy for them to collaborate and store their data. A lot of that magic, you know, why people say they like, they prefer Dropbox is stuff that you wouldn't know goes on, right? So stuff like, for example, when you upload a Word document to Dropbox, we have an instance of Microsoft Word running somewhere and one of our clusters running in Wine, ready to go. As soon as that Word document is uploaded, we pump it into Word, we generate a PDF preview and save that PDF preview in a caching cluster. So that if you try to open that document on your phone, within one second after the upload, you'll be able to view that PDF, right? Similar things happen if you upload a video to Dropbox, we H264 encode the first five seconds of that video, 
very rapidly so we can start streaming it to your device without you even perhaps knowing this is going on in the background, provide a much more seamless experience. So a lot of the innovation we're working on on the infrastructure side is kind of empowering this kind of seamless experience, seamless access to your data. So I can, I can see that if I look at how the challenges infrastructure is going to face as the Dropbox product evolves, I think there's going to continue to be these challenges of just scale. How can we continue to scale up? How do we deploy storage and compute in remote regions? We've announced publicly we're going to have a European storage this year. But also, how can we adapt to a far more collaborative model? So I know previously I described Magic Pocket as a blob store, right, where you're just kind of storing idempotent blocks. A lot of the interesting challenges are how do you provide much more seamless collaborative editing of content, for example. We have internal products we're working on, I won't go into details on, where there's far more emphasis on sharing collaboration. And that has challenges on the infrastructure side, particularly because those operations are far more transactional and far less easily shardable because they're involving multiple users simultaneously. I totally believe that because, uh, you know, I think about just my experience collaborating with people on files and still not, not as great, you know, given how, how much of a primitive it is in terms of how we interact with each other in engineering or computing environments, workplace environments, collaboration still not, not very seamless. It's not good enough. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, one thing with Dropbox, it's in a great place to be the best love syncing collaboration platform but as far as we're concerned it needs to be a lot better right and so there's a lot of work going on right now in the company and improving improving that space and making it much more accessible and seamless to people with kind of business models and that, that aren't kind of familiar with kind of cloud the cloud you know it's easy to be an engineer and, and think that everyone out there has a computer science degree and you know is familiar setting up their own <laughs> server and oh isn't dropbox just rsync and something else right no it's not at all right and so Having empathy for what the real users want is very important. And it's, I think that's, you're going to see a lot more work in that space over the coming year. Totally. So when I think about other companies that are on AWS that have very specific types of workloads, I think of Netflix. Why do you think Netflix is still on AWS? Do you think they will potentially move off of AWS? That's an interesting question. I can't speculate on, on their plans. And, and I would be surprised if they did. A lot of people say, you know, why... Why would Dropbox move more infrastructure in-house where some companies are going the other direction, right? And it yeah. comes down to where your competency is, right? So Dropbox, storage is a huge part of our game, right? And providing very fast, seamless, reliable access to that storage is a very strong competitive advantage for us. And so it makes total sense for us to invest strategically in that space, right? Companies out there which aren't as storage-heavy, for example, or where storage is not such a core part of their business, it makes a lot of sense for them to be leveraged of a third-party provider. Similarly, you know, Netflix actually doesn't have that much storage by Dropbox standards, right? They have a lot of data, but it's <laughs> not in the same scale. What they do have is a huge CDN and a huge network, right? So Netflix's infrastructure looks very different to ours. They have absolutely mammoth data transfers going around. And I think for them, it makes it, it's clearly made sense for them to to focus the attention on one, the content that they're providing and the network distribution and leverage Amazon for the compute and storage, which makes complete sense. And so it really comes down to people doing what makes most sense for their business. Yeah. So at the conclusion of your recent blog post, you said that the primary design principle of Magic Pocket was to keep it simple. And I think of the entire Dropbox product as focused on this 
amazing simplicity. Like from the user's point of view, you trade a little extra cost to have the simplicity of the file experience. You pay for a little more than maybe Google Drive or iCloud because Dropbox invests that extra capital that you are paying for for simplicity. Yeah. And I'm curious if that trend of having to pay extra for simplicity is also true from Dropbox's perspective. Were there times during the planning of Magic Pocket where you opted for a more expensive solution of the architecture? For example, like that append-only thing that we talked about, where even though it would cost more, you got added simplicity. Yeah, and so Magic Pocket is very heavily optimized from a kind of a resource utilization perspective. So it's, you know, it's a sort of highly cost-effective project. There are parts where I'm not sure we've made compromises where we say cost versus complexity. But certainly there's compromises where you invest in cost for the sake of durability and safety. Right? I'll give you a good example of this. It's impossible to live delete data in Dropbox. Right? Every time you delete data, it gets put into kind of a pipeline where it gets kept around for some time period where we verify that delete was actually legitimate before the data is, is removed. So if you get look at how a delete propagates its way down to the storage system, it goes through a lot of complex processes with reference counting and working out who owns this file, etc. Finally makes it down to the storage system where we mark the blocks as deleted. We keep it around for some time period for safekeeping in case there's bugs or unintended issues. And then we go to a garbage collection phase. So we garbage collect those, those volumes and we compact those volumes and we write new ones out. And then we have the old volumes sitting there. They're ready to be deleted. And instead of deleting them, we move them to a separate location we call trash. And we keep them there for a week. And during that week, we reread every block in, in those volumes and make sure every block was meant to be deleted. Now, that is very expensive, right? It's expensive in the tens of millions of dollars kind of range, right? And that, that's, where, that's where you're saying, I'm very willingly going to invest in, some might say, wasting storage hardware. Uh, we don't see it wasting at all. You know, you're investing in hardware where it's going to pay off in terms of reliability, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's really key. So building systems that are they're very simple for the sake of reliability, and that's just obviously a very good trade-off to make. All right. Well, that's a great place to close off. James, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed your blog posts. They're fantastic reads for anyone interested in distributed systems. So I'll definitely put them in the show notes. Excellent. Thanks so much. Really nice talking to you. Okay. Great talking to you too. 